0: If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them?
1: Hello, General
2: Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman.
0: I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. (laughs) Welcome Welcome to the the Calling calling History history Podcast.
1: (laughs) Welcome back to part two of Aaron Burr. So much is happening in this episode, from Burr running from his debtors that are trying to imprison him, being tried and then acquitted of treason, saving Alexander Hamilton's life, and which founding father, not mentioned yet, Burr describes as a dull, stupid person. Did you say create another country or expand the U.S.?
0: Expand the US but to have it headed by someone more sympathetic to the needs of the frontiersmen than the central government in Washington. They weren't getting the job done.
2: So you are looking to expand westward, but was it your intention to, to govern that area?
0: My intention was to govern Mexico only. If we had declared war Yeah. If we had declared war in Spain, only to govern Mexico.
2: As Uh, a separate country or as a state?
0: Well, it would probably be a separate entity. We weren't weren't really sure how it was going to end, but... I see. I see. Well, no, it's very interesting. So, anyway, they had the finest lawyers on both sides during the treason trial, all the cream of the crop on both sides, and Wilkinson was a drunk, and his (laughs) drinking... Became, was evident to the jury, and he, he had to admit on cross-examination that he had doctored the secret cipher letter that I wrote him during our campaign. He changed it to make it more onerous about my intentions. He, he altered it. And he got caught doing that. And the other accuser was General Eaton, who was the um, hero of the Battle of Algiers in Algeria for the United States. And he also was the second most important witness for the prosecution. When he got through with his service in the military in Algeria for the United States battling the Barbary pirates, he put in a claim to the central government of the United States for reimbursement for all his military pay, which the Congress didn't pay. It was stalled for years. And suddenly, when he became a witness for the prosecution, Jefferson had it paid. So that was brought out against him as impeachment or bias. But the big thing was that Chief Justice Marshall did me a big favor. He chose to give the jury instruction as to the definition of treason. There were two definitions that could have been given. One was the common law definition used in England, and the second was the uh, U.S. Constitution definition, and he gave the one in the Constitution that there must be two witnesses that told the jury that I had committed an overt act of war against the United States. Wow. And they only had That's one witness because when the um, posse went out to Blennerhassett Islands near Parkersburg, West Virginia, and found troops that they said I led that were headed southward with muskets, they said that that was an overt act of war, getting ready for some sort of war or invasion. Well, I was not there in Leonard Hazard Island. I was in Kentucky. So the government Mm. argued it was something called constructive conspiracy, that although I wasn't present, I was pulling the strings from afar. And Chief Justice Marshall told the jury that that was not good enough, that you couldn't be charged with conspiracy unless you were right there. So the jury uh, acquitted me. Go
2: ahead. And it seems like this whole time, Jefferson was trying to manipulate the situation.
0: He was. And he had a, of course, Jefferson had his good side. All the founding fathers did, but a lot of them also had bad sides. And Jefferson was very vain. He was used to getting his way as a plantation owner the enslaved and with their women like he was having children by his sister-in-law sally Hemings, who was a wow. um, mixed-race person enslaved and chief justice marshall was a cousin a distant cousin of thomas jefferson and the two did not get along marshall did not like thomas jefferson at all so that was a good judge for me to have and he also hated the fact that jefferson had tried to pack The very Supreme Court that Marshall led by getting rid of the Federalists. So I was very lucky to have Chief Justice Marshall preside over my Richmond trial. And the reason that could occur is that in those years, the Supreme Court justices rode the circuit, meaning they would try cases outside of the city of Washington, D.C. They would go on horseback and go to preside over trials that were outside the District of Columbia.
2: It seems like from your description that Jefferson, as you said, was used to getting his way and would use basically any method that was available to him to get his way. And at the time, Chief Justice Marshall was looking to stand true to what he thought the Constitution said, or maybe some sort of system of, of law that would look less like a king and more like something that would be sustainable for a long period of time. Is that the impression that you're getting?
0: Yes. Uh, Marshall was a real hero. It he made sure that I had a very fair trial. I was in prison for some of it and under a house arrest for some of the others. The trial took a long time, it took about a month. So he was a hero.
2: It I mean, sounds like it.
0: everyone knew that Jefferson in running... Monticello, his estate, that although he had built this wonderful mansion and grounds and estate called Monticello, mm-hmm. it was only beautiful because the enslaved had to build it. And yeah. we heard that Jefferson, you know, he wrote down everything in journals, everything, everything. He, all the plants that he grew, uh, everything he reduced to writing and we heard that he would keep track of how many nails metal nails the enslaved young boys would produce every day and the big producers would get rewarded by extra food rations I mean Jefferson, oh my
2: goodness
0: oh yes, he was a manipulator and yet when the British came to invade Virginia, Jefferson fled. He was a coward.
2: Would you describe Jefferson as ruthless?
0: Ruthless, a military coward, hypocritical. He wouldn't. He, he seemed to resist freeing his own slave. Enslaved. And I hated slavery. I wasn't a, a rabble-rousing abolitionist like some people later in the Quakers, but I realized that slavery was a very evil institution. If I may say so, young man, I, I had very progressive views. I'm the one who stood for women's, I was one of the early persons to stand up for women's rights. I don't know if you know that.
2: Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because you obviously, you said it throughout our call here, you several times brought up slavery. You obviously have some strong feelings about that, and now you've mentioned the rights of women. You call slavery, slavery evil. I mean, there's a lot of people that are involved in slavery at your time. The whole economy is built around it in the South, from my understanding. So what's so evil about it
0: because it involved viewing the Africans as not persons and less than human and capable of being owned and capable of being worked to death and just morally reprehensible I raised my daughter Theodosia to be one of the most highly educated women in America at the age of 10 she was speaking French Fluently, she spoke four languages because of the schooling I gave her. And I always kept the book next to me of Mary Wollstonecraft's book. She was a British author who wrote a book called A Vindication of the Rights of Women. And I believed in that. I could see that women. I married my wife, Theodosia, who was 10 years older than me, because, not because of her physical beauty, but because of her mind. I really admired her intelligence, and so I could see that women had a soul and women were to be treated very well and as human beings. I was widely criticized by my fellow aristocrats when, at dinner parties at my estate, Richmond Hill, I invited Indian leaders, leaders of tribes, to my dinner parties, like Joseph Pierce of New York, and they came, as did black leaders i invited black leaders to my dinner parties which was unheard of in those days and i was criticized for it
2: so you had indians and you had black people and you also had uh, when you say black people black slaves
0: well black intellectuals no free blacks though and the leaders. they they I would come to my dinner parties and the leaders of Indians, not, not the tribes, but the actual chiefs, because oh, I was
2: I so you're in intellectuals.
0: intellectuals, the leaders. I can recognize you're trying, you're trying to learn. I, I believe that people all had worth and were not to be discriminated against unless they were lazy or dull. The one thing I detested second most to being a coward was being a dull, stupid person, such as James Monroe. I often <laughs> cited James Monroe as being really stupid and dull.
2: What was wrong with Monroe?
0: He was never in actual battle, and he was just not that intelligent, and I just didn't get along with him. The, the other thing is that... Um, my relations with General George Washington, looking back on it at this late age of mine, I I did not get along with General George Washington at all. I was on a yeah. And st- that is
2: something. How can that be? How can that be? Every it appears from our time that everybody loved George Washington, and I actually spoke with George Washington a couple days ago, and I asked him if you were one of the founding fathers, and When I asked him that question, he started laughing. I was really surprised to hear that, but I could tell from his voice that you did not get along. Why do you think you didn't get along?
0: Well, there were several reasons. After the Battle of Quebec, I came to the attention of George Washington for my bravery, and he invited me to come and meet with him, and he had me put on his administrative staff and he shortly did the same to Alexander Hamilton. But George Washington, I found, was over overly obsessed with obsequious. He didn't like anyone who was uppity or opinionated that didn't bow down to him. He wanted somebody that would play second fiddle to him and not ever challenge him. And so... He he also was jealous of me and suspicious of me because of my, you might say, privileged family background. Not that I lived a life of privilege, I lived a very hard life, but my parents came from what you might call nobility, my, my um, on both sides. And sure. George Washington was a bit of a dull personality, but I never spoke out against him as I did James Monroe because... I respected George Washington as the leader, first the military leader and then president. And so I I held my tongue and didn't want to let the public know what I thought about him. But one time he ordered me to cross the Delaware River on horseback leading my troops to attack the British on the other side. And I told him that that was a very bad idea because I knew that the British were laying in wait and they would just fire away at us as we were on the bridge. And that's exactly, he said, no, do it anyway. And I did it. I followed his orders and my horse was shot out from underneath me and I was almost killed or captured. So I didn't always respect his military decisions. Uh, We just didn't get along personally. He dismissed me from his staff after a very few weeks. And I went, on the staff of General Israel Putnam and served in the Ramapo Mountains in New York State.
2: Was Putnam an intelligent man?
0: Yes, he was. And I, I ended up referring to him as my dear general. I grew to have a very high opinion of him.
2: Well, let me uh, ask something else then. You you were, uh, uh, w- when you had these dinner parties and you had black and Indian and, and uh, I, I'm guessing female intellectuals, and spending time with these people and learning from these people was important to you. Was Washington intelligent, in your opinion?
0: He was somewhat intelligent. He wasn't super smart. Alexander Hamilton, I have to concede, was super smart as far as his actual native ability of his mind. He did some stupid things, so there's a difference, but he did have a keen intellect. And that's another thing. After Alexander Hamilton founded the Bank of New York because he believed strongly in capitalism and financial strength of the federal government, as opposed to the states' rights, which was Jefferson. Right. I also started a company in New York called the Manhattan Company to bring was fresh it the bank water. With the well, well <laughs> y- yes, but what it, what it is? It started out by its charter meaning the written documents that allowed it to be formed, to bring fresh water to New York City, starting out in Patterson, New Jersey, which was then a the silk capital of our new country. Uh, they had tremendous silk industry. And Alexander Hamilton and I combined, when we were still friends, to build or have built a series of dams and locks uh, near reservoirs that regulated water and By a pipe system, I then went ahead and formed the Manhattan Company to bring the water to New York City. And then Alexander Hamilton got angry because after a year or so, I then had some amendments in the charter to allow the Manhattan Company to do some banking operations. (laughs) And I have to admit in my old age that I can see why Hamilton... When he discovered that, was angry because it was in competition with his bank, the Bank of New York.
2: I see. What year was that?
0: That was just before eighteen hundred.
2: Okay. All right.
0: Now you know that okay. Hamilton and I co-counseled on a famous murder trial in New York City, the Levi Weeks murder case involving the well. Um, his fiance was found dead at the bottom of a well.
2: Hold on. Hold on. So. It is incredible to hear about you and Alexander Hamilton because you guys are just back and forth. I mean, right here we go from the bank issue to, you know, where he sees you in direct competition. And then there are all the political issues where you guys are fighting back and forth. But now we're back to a part where you guys are working together on some giant murder case. And I've heard a little bit about this, but your relationship is so complicated. Go, go, tell me about this, this case.
0: So Levi Weeks was just an ordinary citizen as far as social standing. In other words, he was not an aristocrat, a landowner. And he was arrested and charged with the murder of his fiancée, who was found dead at the bottom of a well in New York City. And the evidence was flimsy. And without going into what the evidence was, I did most of the work, but Hamilton and I, Served as his co counsel, and we got a jury verdict of not guilty very, very quick after the jury got the case. And so we did work on cases together. Uh, and then also, I'm the one that allowed Alexander Hamilton to escape the British during the Battle of Brooklyn, also known as the Battle of Brooklyn Heights or the Battle of Long Island, which right. the British devastated us. Uh, it was just like Quebec, it was a terrible massacre of our forces and a thick Alexander Hamilton and I were on this fighting on the same side of course and a thick fog came over the battlefield very thick and it allowed me to lead Hamilton because I knew the territory better back safely to New York City and so so we saved his life saved his life so we had a very complicated and long relationship that ended up Going the worst direction.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so,
0: definitely. Was, was Hamilton
2: a better politician than you?
0: No, because I'm the one that helped found Tammany Hall, which was the politi- became the political party or union of the Democratic Republicans, which is what the party was called the party of the people, as opposed to the Federalist Party. And so Hamilton didn't trust the people to govern. He thought that only the elite should run the country. Only they were smart enough to run the country. And the Federalists tended to believe in that. And they wanted big government, centralized, and they didn't trust states' rights. Because they thought the states would mess up if allowed to govern their own affairs a lot. So I thought I was the better politician because I uh, knew how to organize the votes and go and knock on doors and appeal to the voters directly. But Hamilton did have the brilliance to see the need for a banking system, and he knew a lot about finance. He became Secretary of the Treasury, and he was brilliant. It's just that he made some bad mistakes.
2: A couple mistakes along the way. How about Jefferson? Are you a better politician than Jefferson?
0: Jefferson had his strengths. He had tremendous writing abilities, as did Hamilton. Hamilton was a co-author with John Jay and one other on the Federalist Papers, which explained the Constitution better. So Hamilton was a tremendous writer and, and could see the big picture of government. And Jefferson was a good writer, although he was timid and he had a, a weak voice. He wasn't a, a, charis, a charismatic person, and he was hypocritical and all, and all that, But and then vin, very vindictive.
2: Jefferson sounds vindictive. The way you're describing it, when I asked if he was ruthless, I, maybe that's the word I was looking for, vindictive. But Hamilton was vindictive too, wasn't he?
0: He was. Unfortunately, he paid with his life because he wouldn't fess up and apologize. I gave him every opportunity. All he had to do was apologize.
2: Yeah, no, it it seems like that. If if he had apologized, would that have been the end of it?
0: Yes. I would have withdrawn the challenge. I I wouldn't have issued. It was only after he refused the 10 or so exchanges of letters that I then declared the challenge.
2: I asked Washington if you were a founding father, what what would your answer be to that?
0: To be honest, I realized that I was on the second tier of being a founding father, somewhat similar to Benjamin Franklin, who I don't consider to be a founding father, but I was in the second tier and had a lot of good companions, but I am not an actual founding father.
2: Okay. There's a there's an extraordinary story that I have pieces of that I'd would love to hear from you that has to do with something that happened in Valley Forge, right? In our time, Valley Forge. I mean, this sounds like the worst place that you could ever be, and it was miserable and just the worst moment in that in well, at least General Washington's uh, campaign. But what was your experience with Valley Forge?
0: Okay, I was dispatched to not Valley Forge but to a milita- a, a, an important military outpost that we had just south of Valley Forge at a place called Ghent, G-H-E-N-T. Mm-hmm. And it was during that terrible winter of, I think, in uh, 1777, 1780, uh, 1778, that winter, that terrible winter. And okay. the reason I was sent there by... George Washington and other top leaders, was to instill discipline in the troops that were starting to mutiny. Now, when I say mutiny, they were absconding, which was absolutely forbidden. They were very, very upset, for good reason, that the central government that was forming of our early country was not supplying them with sufficient clothing, shoes, coats, blankets, money that was owed them. And so they had had it. It was a terrible winter. The food, they were hungry and they were mad. So they were starting to rebel and threaten to all take off. So I was sent there because I was known as a tough guy in the military. And when I got there, I I heard a rumor because I have a long history in Westchester County, New York, near White Plains of intelligence were for the military. So I learned that when I did the formation the next morning, when I rode my horse down the lines of troops greeting them, one of the soldiers was going to kill me. He was going to shoot me with his musket. So,
2: and you got that through intelligence?
0: Yes, uh, there at the fort. Okay. And the troops were drinking a lot, and they all fell asleep. And some insiders and I went very carefully and quietly and removed all the ammunition from all the muskets of the troops and so the next morning they didn't realize that the ammunition was gone and as i was doing the horse routine sure enough one of the soldiers stepped out and leveled his musket at me to shoot me of course he didn't know it was empty and i used my sword and i hit him on the arm and almost took his arm off I had to do that to instill discipline. All these things in the military were very difficult and I didn't do them lightly, but you had to be tough. If you were going to be conducting a battle, just like the duel, you mean business. Don't go to a duel if, if you secretly are not going to fire at the opponent.
2: <laughs> My goodness. Did you ever, I mean, what if he had reloaded his, his rifle <laughs> the next morning? That wouldn't have turned out quite as well.
0: That's correct, because that could have been done. I would have had no way of knowing. So that you still that, got on the horse and walked down the, the row, with the
2: intention of getting the troops in order.
0: Yes, and then this one man stepped out. It was clear to me what he was about to do. I had to hit him on the arm. I didn't take it all the way off, but it was a, a severe wound.
2: Wow. So what was that? What was uh, Valley Forge like at that time?
0: Well. The troops were in miserable, emotional condition. And I I hope the country in later years appreciates and realizes how difficult it was for the colonies to fight the largest military power in the world, England, who came over here and tried to suppress our movement. And the conditions were terrible. When you're hungry and ill-clothed, and you're not getting your pay, that makes for a God. bad a bad mix.
2: It's incredible that the leaders of your time were even able to move that along, just to keep that in place. When you described there was a, you know, there was a mutiny that you were trying to get control of, I don't know how there couldn't be a mutiny every third day. No food and the leather off of your your shoes and freezing and frostbite and, and of course there were smallpox during that time did, did you get smallpox
0: no um, I suffered from migraine headaches but and I cited that as a reason that I was eventually retired from the, the army and then later much later Congress passed an act that compensated the troops with money that they had earned from serving in the Revolutionary War, when I came back from Europe, I put in an application because I didn't get paid for my service. was denied because they said that the act said that you had to still be in the armed services when the armistice was signed between Britain and the colonies. Otherwise, you weren't eligible for the benefits. And oh I was before that, so it was denied.
2: So you, did, you, didn't, you didn't get that money back I understand Washington put in for a large sum
0: of reimbursement. I heard a little bit about it, but I don't know much about it.
2: When you were in Europe, you you did quite a bit of traveling over there, didn't you?
0: I really did. First, I went to England and met with Jeremy Bentham, who was the leading intellect in England. And then I went what to... What
2: did you like about him?
0: Well, he was an intellect and an author. He had written a book. Then I went to sweden and spent four or five weeks there and then i left there because i was fearful that the winters were terrible and so i i got out of there and i went to germany spent quite a bit of time in germany weimar and other parts of germany and then i made my way to paris france where i had a mixed reaction they knew of course about The treason trial, and so the Bonaparte regime put me under surveillance. I was always watched.
2: (laughs) Napoleon Bonaparte was watching you because of the treason accusal?
0: Right, that I might do something and try to stir up something against the United States. Oh, my goodness. That is incredible. France was very friendly with the colonies, you know, Lafayette. Um, But I had a good time in Paris, and I did frequent... Ladies of the night, I had my needs. I considered that it was okay. I have relations, physical relations with women. And, and, well, I understand
2: you know, there was quite a bit of, of writing that you, that you did throughout your life about this. And that, I mean, we're all human, right?
0: Yes. And, and I had a very, very close relationship with my daughter, Theodosia. Uh, she and I had a unique relationship, meaning it was so close. She loved me so much, and I loved her, and I I guess she was titillated by, for some reason, by my adventures with women. So she encouraged me to put in my letters my experiences with various women. She somehow found that to be interesting.
2: Sounds like you were more friends than father-daughter.
0: Right, and that's one of the reasons that some people think that when Alexander Hamilton said at the dinner party that he had an even more despicable opinion of me, some people thought that maybe he meant that I had some extra relationship with my daughter Theodosia, which of course I didn't. And, and But it made, that made me extra mad that he might be trying to put that out there.
2: Do you think and, Alexander I, Hamble- Hamilton was capable of using information like that to get what he wanted, even though he knew that it wasn't true? Just your opinion.
0: I don't know. You know that he was having an affair with Mrs. Maria Reynolds. You know about that, right?
2: Yes, very much.
0: She had come to him. She was married for legal advice and they ended up falling for each other physically and they carried on a Extramarital relationship for about a year, and then her husband, Mr. Reynolds, saw an opportunity to blackmail Alexander Hamilton for money payments, shake him down. Right. And, and so, Mr. Reynolds let it be known to Alexander that unless he started making payments, push money to Reynolds, Reynolds will spill the beans. So Hamilton made the payments for a period of time, and then that got discovered. And people started thinking that the payments might have been, this was what some people thought, it wasn't the truth. That the payments had something to do with when Alexander Hamilton was Secretary of the Treasury, that he was doing favors for Reynolds, but that wasn't it. So it was hush money for the affairs. So Hamilton, when the whole thing hit the fan, decided that it was better to go down in history as an adulterer. Than as a corrupt member of the cabinet. So he let the people know that it was because of the affair. And Hamilton had about nine children, and his wife was wonderful, and she stuck by him always, even after death.
2: Do you wish that things would have gone differently with you and Hamilton, or did they go the way they should have?
0: No, they they should have gone differently because, you know, as far as me beating general Schuyler for the U.S. Senate, let the best man win, let the people decide. I ran for governor of New York, and Hamilton did everything he could to have people not vote me in, and I lost. That's the way it goes. It should have just stayed that way. It's only because Hamilton couldn't let go of his growing distrust and terrible opinion of me. He, for some reason, was in that group of people, mostly aristocrats, that distrusted me, that considered me a dishonest person that had no principles. I had a lot of principles.
2: Yeah, clearly.
0: I'm the one I mean, that for women's rights, Native American leaders, emancipation from slavery. I had a lot of principles, but A certain number of my colleagues thought that I was a really bad person that never should be president, can't be trusted, and Hamilton was in that group.
2: Did you want to be president, Colonel Burr?
0: I did. At the end, I did. I thought that I would do a better job than Jefferson.
2: Well, by listening to you talk about Jefferson, I I get the impression that you think that anybody could have done a better job than Jefferson. (laughs) Yes. I have two I have two more questions for me and i am just so thankful for all of your time I really am I, this conversation gives us a totally different picture than than a lot of us have here at this time because I, I don't think a lot of people ever got to understand your participation on the battlefield and the times that you had to be courageous and how you like you like you said how you did stand up for blacks and women's and you know different minorities and the Indians, which would have been seems like it would be so out of place at that time. And so I, just, I guess I just have two more questions for me because your life started in such a difficult place where your parents and your grandparents and the people that you love die right away. But then, you know, you bounce back from that and do very well in school. And then you left school to go fight in the Continental Army and showed tremendous bravery there. And then, of course, rose all the way to being the vice president. I mean, you've got this huge arc in your life and then it makes this turn to where where you are right now, which like you said, running out of money and, and you're living in a boarding house, which is just terrible to hear for you know a man who served as vice president of our country. And I guess if you were to look back at that whole arc uh, of events, starting from very low to very high and then back down to this difficult time, if you could go back and pick one or two areas, just one spot where you say, I would have done that differently or I would have done that differently what comes to mind
0: well i would say that i should have done the uh, southwest territories exploration differently i think i, I got a, a little too aggressive by associating myself with the general of the army wilkinson and that added a military component that obviously aroused suspicion and oh. It was a poor choice because the person that could hurt me and bring me down was the president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who already hated me. I had some good intentions of exploring westward expansion, but I would say that what I did was very edgy. And so that's one area. I'm proud of my legal career. When I came back from Europe, I was able... I think I was 57 and I lived to 80 and I was able to slowly resume my practice of law in New York. And there was a famous case that I was proud of. You may not have heard of, young man. It was called the MedCef-Eden. I'm going to spell that capital M-E-D-C-E-F. That's one word, capital E-D-E-N, probate case. And basically to summarize, Medkef Eden was a New York brewer who made a great fortune, and he died in 1798 and left his estate, real estate, in New York City to his two sons, who inherited his wealth, but within three years, uh, foolishly blew through his money and became bankrupt. Alexander Hamilton turned down the task when asked to be the lawyer to try to recapture the seized real estate that was given to creditors, he turned it down, saying it was hopeless. And then I had just returned from Europe, and I heard about the case, and I took it on. One of the sons died, so I, I then worked with Martin Van Buren, and we worked on the case for years, and we got a good settlement. Um,
2: it's it's incredible. I mean, the case is interesting, but the incredible thing is, is that you get accused of treason because, you, like I said, this is something that you, you would like to change, and yet you come back and put your law practice back together? That's amazing.
0: Yes, and there were a lot of people that hated me. Predators were trying to put me in what they call in limits, and, and that meant in prison. They were actually aggressively through the court trying to have judges put me in debtor's prison. And so I moved to Jersey City, New Jersey, to try to get away from New York jurisdictionally. And I, I sort of hid from my creditors. I was always being hounded, even by wealthy people that had loaned me money when I was in Europe. They hired lawyers to try to collect money that I owed them. If I had it to do over again, of course, I would have tried to somehow live within my means and not have this tremendous debt?
2: That makes a lot of sense. As I'm sitting here talking to you, looking at this whole picture that you painted for me, I have a note here that I was going to ask you that says, would you have been more responsible with your money? And it sounds like that maybe is the other thing. There's a certain irony of that too, because it's my understanding that in your law office, you had a a bowl full of coins. And people came into your office, American Coins, people could just take a handful of coins if they wanted to. Is that true?
0: Yes, yes. That's a practice that I had. I was generous. And on the Medcalf eden case, I didn't receive any pay. I I agreed to, if we won, to take the money out of the winning. So I didn't always make the best legal business decisions on getting paid up front. And then, of course, my wife, my final wife, accused me of squandering her money. She was the wealthiest woman in North America. That was Elijah Jumel. And she accused me after a very short period of being married. I was investing her money, and I made a few mistakes on choices of where to put her money. She thought I was squandering it and once accused me of selling her horse without telling her. Anyway...
2: (laughs) Is it true that her divorce lawyer was Alexander Hamilton, Jr.?
0: Yes, and <laughs> they had to allege oh. <laughs> adultery, which was the only grounds in New York for granting a divorce, and that was just a, a year or so ago, and much as I like to think that some women may find me attractive, I can guarantee you I was not having sexual intercourse with any woman at my age. Yeah, <laughs> no I, 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 I
2: but without adultery, there was no divorce, and she needed the divorce. It sounded like
0: that's right, and at first, I opposed the divorce I fought it for a little while, and then I just let it go. It's sort of pending right now
2: well at some point you just you just got to do the best you can with what you have well colonel Burr, I, I just want to I want to thank you for all of your time I want to thank you for your leadership and your generosity and your fairness and and your service because there's no question about it that fight the these difficult times that your life appears to be ending in. You've given us so much and we are thankful.
0: Oh, well, young man, you're more than welcome. I'm glad to be able to unburden myself and to get a few things out on the record just in case my reputation can be improved in the future. I have no idea whether it will be or not, but I, I've given it a good shot through you.
2: Well, if I have anything to say about it, it will.
0: I, I, again, thank
2: you for your time, and I wish you the best of health the rest of your life. Thank you again.
0: Okay, Mr. Dean, thank you. Good luck to you, young man. Bye. Thank you.
1: After Lin-Manuel Miranda read the book on Alexander Hamilton, he was inspired to write the play that made Hamilton a hero to us all. What if he'd read a book on Aaron Burr first? How would he have characterized Burr? Would he have praised his bravery on the battlefield and the fact that he was able to rise to the level of vice president, missing president by a single vote? Would his accomplishments have inspired us all, considering that he did this even though everyone that loved him died before he was old enough to benefit from their love and wisdom? It's true that Aaron Burr made many mistakes, used poor judgment, and was terrible with money, all of which ultimately resulted in his downfall, causing him to live the final years of his life broke in a boarding house, in poor health and alone. But prior to firing that shot that killed Alexander Hamilton, his star was on the rise, and may have kept rising. If the gun had misfired, or the two men had amended their dispute, instead of being forgotten by history, he may have been the next president fighting for those without rights. Because as he said, all people have worth. Thanks for listening and don't forget that when you subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, a baby unicorn is born and you are making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean and until next time, I'm History.